Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 354. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor for 2018, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. It's the leading trade magazine in the floral industry and the only independent periodical for the retail, wholesale, and supplier market. Take advantage of the special offer for a free trial issue at deborahprinzing.com, where you can also find the show notes for today's episode, 354. So often I record my episodes of the Slow Flowers podcast over the phone or over a Skype connection. My guests' voices are real and engaging, but we aren't even able to see one another, let alone see the flowers or farms we're discussing. So you can imagine how fun it was to record in real time, seated across the table or in a comfy corner in adjacent chairs. That's my preference. Over Memorial Day weekend, I actually carved out a day for an on-location episode with my visit to Laughing Goat Farm in Enumclaw, Washington. The farm is owned by Amy and Steve Brown, and they are passionate caretakers of a 10-acre former dairy farm in the shadow of Mount Rainier, south of Seattle. While we live 30 minutes from one another, it took traveling to Fairbanks, Alaska in the dead of winter for the three of us to meet. It was January 2017, and the Alaska Peony Growers Association invited me to speak at the winter conference. I met Amy and Steve there. I knew their farm's name because they had just joined Slow Flowers, and it was fun to learn more about their curiosity about peony growing, which drew them to the conference. Since then, the couple has planted hundreds of beautiful peonies, as well as ornamental woody shrubs, perennials, annuals, and edibles at Laughing Goat Farm. It is an emerging farm with big ambitions and the talents of two people who have realized business success in other fields, Steve in real estate and Amy in the fascinating world of ballroom dancing. So this new chapter is one they cherish because they can do it together. As Amy writes on Laughing Goat's Facebook page, we grow organic seeds for flowers as well as food, and we are members of Slow Flowers. Our sustainable farm is geared toward organic and permaculture practices. You'll find their story so fascinating. Farming drew both Amy and Steve to this place where flowers grow in orderly beds and tunnels, and they cherish the sustainable, delicious, and fragrant life they are building together. I'm so happy to share this conversation with you. Enjoy photos of the farm, the goats, the flowers, and the fields at Laughing Goat Farm, which you can find in the show notes for today's episode at TebraPrincing.com. I'm predicting big things for this young farm. Selfishly, I'm so happy it's close to me. Laughing Goat Farm is selling some of its harvest through the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market and direct to florists closer to their farm. You can find links and photos at TebraPrincing.com. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I am so delighted today to introduce my friend Amy Brown of Laughing Goat Farm. Hi, Amy. 
Hi, Deborah. We've just had a great tour of your property here in Enumclaw, Washington, which is sort of southeast of Seattle, would you say? Yes. Okay. And Amy and her husband, Steve Brown, uh, and I met originally in Fairbanks, Alaska at the Alaska Petey Rowers Conference last year. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. We live miles from each other. <laughs> So close. Yeah, we had to go to Alaska. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. So um, I, we've been talking about getting together, and I, it's wonderful that Amy brought me out here to the farm so I could just do a full tour, and we'll share some photos on the show notes. Um, but I want you to hear her story. And um, maybe, Amy, you can just give us a snapshot of what is Laughing Goat Farm. Also, you do have to tell us about the name because it's so cute. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so paint a picture for people so they can imagine the size and what this farm is all, all about. Sure. So we're located on the Enumclaw Plateau, about halfway in between Auburn and downtown Enumclaw. And we're a 10-acre former dairy farm that... We started a couple years ago as a actually vegetable fruit and herb farm and then kind of fell into into finding about the slow flowers movement and discovering cut flowers and what a beautiful world it was. Oh, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about that later okay. on in the podcast. <laughs> also, um, too, if people don't know where um, Edom Claw and Auburn are, you have an amazing... Uh, landmark that you, a natural landmark that you view from here. What is that? We do have an incredible view of Mount Rainier. Okay. So if you know where Mount Rainier is, you're kind of with, I don't know, it's probably miles oh, away. Gosh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't actually tell you that, but you're right. It's probably maybe about 30, 45 minute drive from okay. here. Not okay. too far. Okay. But you're, um, you know, surprisingly rural considering how close you are to the population uh, centers of Tacoma and Seattle. Yes, we are. We are in actual farm country. Okay, cattle country to be correct. Yeah, well, if it was a dairy farm. Yes, and there's they're all around us still. So, so um, when did you actually start the farm? Even though you were doing edibles at, in the original first year or so. I think it was 2015. Okay, was was probably the year after I sold my business. Okay, so. and we'll talk about that. Um, what, what you said, ten acres. Like, what do you? What are your crops right now? And what do you? What are the structures? And how much? How much <laughs> input have you had to bring here? Well, pretty much everything we started. So, main crops are peonies. We're adding roses, woodies. Um, we grow chrysanthemums in tunnels for the fall. I got to see them. They're yes. really healthy. And we're doing dahlias and a lot of annuals too. Mm. But but really trying to transition more into kind of specialty crops and mm-hmm. more long-term. Right. Because you do have the space to add woodies. Yes. The one thing just, just I had to comment on when I saw the, the three parallel rows of three of three different types of cotinus, um, and you said, well, I like my fields to look pretty. Yeah. <laughs> you have a design aesthetic to everything you do. Yeah, I think I was really inspired by being in English gardens and their sense of um, how they use plants and colors and you know, just the just the beauty of sort of landscaping within a cutting garden and sure, why kind not? of being in a beautiful space when you're working. Oh, absolutely. And you've got this this beautiful environment to, with the mountains in the distance and um there's a little order and maybe that's the English garden uh inspiration too. Like there's an order and a logic to what you're doing. Um, and then you have how many high tunnels and low tunnels? So we have four of the lower tunnels and then we have one high tunnel built and one that will be Coming soon. Okay. Plus your greenhouse. And the greenhouse. Wow. And so those you've all added in the last three years. Yes. The high tunnel was actually just built this year. Okay. The four tunnels last year and the greenhouse was last summer. Wow. So, so you're kind of in real time figuring this out as yeah. you're, you're, you're planting crops and 
building infrastructure at the same time. Exactly. Wow. And, it, and they're getting filled up immediately. I mean, it's like we have plans for the next tunnel before it's even built. Well, you're lucky because Steve is in on this with you, right? I mean, he's he's your equal partner in this he's endeavor. In, he's incredible. There's there's no way I could do it without him. I mean, he puts in the irrigation, he levels the fields, he tills, he works in compost, he troubleshoots everything, he's the electronics guy, he builds the tunnels. I mean, there's nothing he can't do. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And he, he couldn't tell you a Cotinus from a hellebore, but... He did just try to say the botanical or the horticulture name for uh, Latin for um, the hornbeam, and, and yes. you had to kind of yeah. help him with that. I think he got it backwards, but he was close. He's, <laughs> he, he's, he's trying. Yeah, he is. It's great. Um, so what you're just beginning to develop how you want to sell, and, I, and even that transition from vegetable to to floral is not 100% complete because you're still growing some edibles here. Mm-hmm. What what are your outlets um, for selling what you're starting to harvest and you'll have more every year? Sure. So we, we do have a restaurant account that we service in town with our edibles and she's starting to buy some florals from us, Ooh. which is kind of fun. Oh, neat. Yeah, because we have them available and yeah. we offer them to her. And we're selling direct to some florists and um, obviously I like to keep beautiful flowers in my home. <laughs> not going <laughs> to lie. You're your own client. <laughs> That's right. And then we are selling, we're starting to sell at the Growers Market this year too, which has been really fun. The Seattle Wholesale Growers Market. Yes. And so you're um, starting to figure out all your harvesting practices and what your, you know, what, how many stems per bunch. And a lot of that is sort of set by the market's preferred way of selling product, right? Yeah. And I imagine that they're, that that's kind of standard for the industry, which, you know, obviously I have to learn what that is. Yeah. Well, even while we were walking around today, you, you were pointing to things like Bells of Ireland and to the, the Nine Bark and saying, oh, I'm taking that into the market yeah. this week. So, And remember I asked you, like, well, how long will the stem be or, or the lamb's ear? How, how are you cutting that? That with the lamb's ears actually was up at your house, wasn't it? The lamb's ear is in my yeah. backyard, but we do have it. We do have it growing here in one yeah. of the tunnels as well. So. That's pretty good this early in the season to have product to sell because it's just nice to, before the dahlias come on, it's nice to have cash flow. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, and then you're you're um, you mentioned that you're right across the street from a, a wedding and event venue, so I could see that being a nice little possible possibility too. Yeah, they do have some florists that they work with. I don't think they're preferred vendors. Mm-hmm. I think they're preferred vendors. They're mm-hmm. not um, specifically set on that. Yeah, but, but wouldn't I, those florists like to know that you're right here? But I think it would be fun for those florists to know that we're right across the street. Yeah. <laughs> and I also think it would be really fun for the brides who are kind of in that do-it-yourself mindset yeah. you know be able to have a venue to come and take a workshop or absolutely. pick up buckets or you know oh absolutely so uh you have a lot of plans and I'm we've been kind of hinting at them uh, we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast I want to hear your story and have you share your personal story and I'll ask everybody this like what was the path that brought you to flowers you've had a rich uh life before you became a flower farmer um Tell us a little bit about that, and then what what pivoted you uh, to start Laughing Goat Farm? Well, I well I think first of all having the property available was you know kind of the benchmark for being able to sure. even consider doing something like this. Right. But um, my former life, I was a professional ballroom dance competitor and instructor. Oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> that is crazy. How did you even get into that? You know, it's it's just funny how kind of life takes you. you uh-huh. know, I was a student at the University of Washington, and I had a family member who was moving to Hawaii and needed some help. So I 
was sort of disenchanted with getting my degree at that moment in time. I think I kind of needed to experience life more than I needed to be in school at Mm -hmm. that moment. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of left school as a drama pre-med major. I was Mm -hmm. very indecisive. So you were in your 20s? Yeah, I was in my early 20s. I mean, I think I was 23 maybe when when I moved to Hawaii. And I didn't have a job and I didn't have anything lined up. But I had always heard from the movies that Arthur Murray trained instructors and with absolutely no dance background other than maybe tap classes as a little girl. I walked into a studio and was immediately given a job as a receptionist and put in their training program to be a teacher. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. It was wow. like just crazy. What and island I, were you on? Oahu. Wow. Yeah. That is crazy. <laughs> it's just some, interesting how the universe pulls you into things. And I just, yeah, I just, <laughs> like, I know it's like, I'll really, do it. <laughs> yeah, I'll, why not? I mean, I didn't have anything better to do, right? Wow. Except maybe go to the beach, but yeah. I just really fell in love with teaching and I fell in love with dancing and, um, you know, and it was, it was kind of one of those, like at that age and at that time in my life, it was like, wow, I can't believe you actually pay me to do this. This is like so cool. I'm fulfilling this kind of lifelong dream. Mm-hmm. And, um, wow. Yeah. Cause you obviously had a little bit of dance background, but it was as a child. Yeah, and there was, and there's a lot of, I think, glamour and kind of glitz that surrounds that that maybe mm-hmm. is appealing, and mm-hmm. it, it seems like people are really attracted to that. So, so then you were an instructor at Arthur Murray, or I was. It was an instructor in about eh, three or four months in Hawaii, and then my grandfather got ill and mm-hmm. was, I was called home mm. to see him for a final mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and I just, back to the Seattle area or? yeah back home to Bremerton where okay. my parents lived and they were he was living with them mm. and I managed to make it home the last night that he was able to speak mm. and it was you know we were all together as a family when he passed and then I just ended up staying in the area mm-hmm. and kind of wandered around a little bit managed to get back to Arthur Murray again and Worked there for about another 15 years, mm-hmm. eventually owning my own business. Mm-hmm. And this was in, like, the Tacoma area? or I did. I opened the Tacoma Arthur Murray okay. in 2007. So, uh, Amy, I'm only familiar with ballroom dancing by movies and TV. Um, I think of it as something that doesn't even exist in our world anymore uh, for real people. And here you were you were running a whole business, teaching and then competing. Like yeah. How, what happened to you? How did that, what, what did that do for your life? You went all around the world? Oh, I did. Or? I traveled everywhere and, you know, met some really great people. That's actually how I met Steve. Wow. He was my student for 10 years and we competed all over the United States and Canada and Europe. I want to ask him what drew him to ballroom dancing. I, I, well, he... What would he say? He would tell you that he had a girlfriend at the time who, when he asked her why they never went out dancing... She told him it was because he was a lousy dancer. Huh. Well, so he decided to take lessons. That's cool. And he, like, sort of fell in love with it, and he ended up not doing it with the girlfriend and kind of... Finding you. Know, you. His, yeah, yeah, his whole life changed at that point in time, too, I think he would say. But. Yeah. So you owned a, your own... After you left Arthur Murray, you opened your own studio. Well, I did. I opened an Arthur Murray. It's a franchise. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. So you were really developing that, that market in running a business, but you were being an entrepreneur, right? Yes. And uh, at some point, uh, not too long ago, you left the whole industry then, right? I did. After Steve and I got married Mm -hmm. in 2012, Okay. I had the business for another year, but as I think I mentioned earlier, kind of got disenchanted and, you know, was just away from home all the time and was newly married and, you know, I wanted to spend some time with my husband. Yeah. 
just do some other things with my life. And you probably didn't have anything else to prove. Like you'd already had great successes and, and experiences. And... Yeah. And I wasn't competitively dancing anymore. Mm. And, and I, because I didn't have that kind of draw that really was a true love of mine. I think when you love that, it's easy to become disenchanted with mm -hmm. the other parts that maybe aren't so great. And you, know, mm -hmm. you got to take the good with the bad mm -hmm. always, but right. It ran your, it, it owned you for a long time and you were ready to do something. Yeah. I was pretty burned out. You made a comment when we were driving down here also that, um, you go to all these amazing places around the world to compete, but you're in a ballroom like 20 hours a day and you're not even out in nature, you know, so you weren't, you were kind of disconnected with, whatever natural beauty was in these amazing destinations too. Yeah. It sounds like a really glamorous life. You know, you travel all the time and you get to go to these really amazing places. I mean, we went to Hawaii several times for competitions uh -huh. and you, you know, you're, you can't go in the water because you're, you've got your hair and makeup on, <laughs> you know, and you, you, you've got to be dancing at certain times. Right. And it takes quite a while to get into that. Get right. Up. So right. you're, you're kind of a prisoner of the circumstances, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. So you sort of watch, as you walk from your hotel room to the ballroom. Like, know, oh, that's beautiful, oh, but I can't go out This is a there. really beautiful space, but I don't get to go explore it or see what's kind of in the area. And that was always a little tragic to me. Yeah, so 180 degrees opposite. You're now in your farmer clothing and... <laughs> right, no makeup. <laughs> <laughs> your, your, your daily life is completely different and you seem so happy. I love it. It's like so peaceful to me. And, you know, it's... I think every flower farmer can attest to the fact that it's dirty, it's sweaty, it's hot. You know, it's there's a lot of hard work yeah, involved with yeah. it, but it's just so rewarding and it's such a beautiful way to spend your life outside, connected with nature and with your environment. I'm sure that, I mean, the hard work is kind of compensated for by just all this beauty that you're just seeing every day and this beauty that you're growing and creating. Um, and your 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 curiosity is being fueled because you you seem so inquisitive about what can I grow, what's the new thing that I can trial, and what can I learn from my what I'm trying to do. And I think that's is that why you went back to school or? Yeah, well, I started. I, I wanted to finish my degree because, as I said, I had left to move to Hawaii, and then I got detoured by a whole profession by a whole profession that yeah. became a career, and. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to go back and do what I had done before. And I, I knew if I wanted to get my degree, I wanted it to be in something substantial that I could use, you know, something I could sink my teeth into. Mm -hmm. And found out about horticulture through Marianne Benetti. Yeah, that's so neat. And, One of my good friends. And I just, you know, started researching it and found out that Oregon State University had an online degree, which kind of worked for my lifestyle at the time. Right. You're not going to go live in a dorm room. You just, <laughs> you know, you're a grown up. <laughs> right. I'm an yeah. adult. Yeah. I want to travel and like have a life. So, you know, I started at OSU and kind of discovered all these neat facets of horticulture that started exploring. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just been kind of falling down the rabbit hole. Wow. And that's, um, that is a, a I, I, first of all, I didn't know that they had a kind of a remote program like that. So you have to be pretty self-motivated to do online science classes, I would imagine. Correct. It's pretty intensive in science classes actually mm -hmm. and in some cases you might have to go down to the campus which mm -hmm. I've had to do a couple times mm -hmm. but um you know I actually like the science courses and I think yeah. when it's applicable knowledge that's really interesting to me yeah so do they teach anything relating to floriculture or flower farming or is I, it really straight do. horticulture yeah it's just straight horticulture it's more an agriculture mm -hmm. college so mm -hmm. they they and it's interesting to me that they don't have a floriculture department they do have a botany department but they don't have that available online yet mm -hmm. so so are you are you able to kind of 
create projects that, that relate to what you're doing on your farm. Like I noticed you were showing me all the propagation that you're doing. I mean, that's, that's production skills that, that maybe they teach at the university or is that all? Yeah, I, I think so. They do have greenhouses yeah. and such. I, I'm hoping if I decide, we'll, we'll see how I feel after I finish my, uh, my bachelor of science. Mm-hmm. But if I go back to get my master's degree, I'm hoping that I can use the farm as kind of a launching pad for, you know, projects. Or, yeah. Yeah. So I see so the propagation that you're doing, like with the moms and some of the other things that you started from seed, like, well, all that Dusty Miller, for example. Right. You're just doing that as a I'm, flower farmer then. I'm just doing it as a flower farmer. You know, it's more expensive to buy plants yeah. or, or plugs. And, yeah. and it seems like I've been hearing murmurings that there's a real need in each market to have available plugs for people that perhaps don't have the space or, you know, we have a propagation chamber in a right. greenhouse and that's right. it's pretty intensive equipment, but it, it sure speeds things up and makes it a lot easier. So if we can supply local growers with things that maybe they can't start yeah, and then they don't have to have it shipped in from New York or yeah, wherever. I, th- I think there's a, I, I sense that there is a, um, a, kind of a a hidden industry happening where flower farmers who have expertise in certain categories are able to sell either cuttings or plugs or starts to other farms because not everybody has access to greenhouses or whatever. Right. Very cool. Um, Your pivot from vegetables to flowers, how did that start? Or I don't want to say you abandoned vegetables completely, but you became enamored with flowers. You did. You mentioned that you something did happen that kind of changed your interest. Well, I, you know, we were growing the vegetables, and I know it's just it's just not as sexy. At <laughs> <laughs> Although you have a lot of tomatoes out there. No, we do like to grow the tomatoes. You know, I do like to. I like to. I still have some vegetable crops that I really like to mm-hmm. grow. And we started growing vegetables because I was concerned about our food system and sure. food sovereignty and a lot of different issues yeah. around food. And, um, but it just turns out that I just didn't want to market them and, you know, deal with the big, bigger growers that seem to have the corner on the market mm-hmm. and you just don't make a lot of money. Yeah. So really you're, you're selling to at a, at a farm stand or at a farmer's market or to right. a restaurant, but there's a lot of labor involved in, in that, at that level probably. Yeah. And I just don't, honestly, I don't want to be sitting at a farmer's market for eight hours a yeah. day. I'd rather be at my farm. Yeah. It's yeah. a hard way to make, couple hundred bucks. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so flowers kind of got you interested and, and you, when was, when did you first start growing flowers then? Just, we actually just started growing flowers last year. Okay. So we, wow. last year was, was kind of a trial year for us. We put in some peonies to see how they would do out here. And they're thriving. And they're doing fantastic. They're yeah. just so beautiful. So you've got like about 300 right now? About 300, and we're adding at least another 1,000 this fall. Wow, that's great. And that takes time. So why wait, right? Right. It's it, Because it's such a long-term project, now that I know that they do well out here and I can kind of handle them, mm-hmm. then I... I want to put in quite a few at once so that, you know, we can start getting really abundant harvests off of them. That's smart. I sort of see your your approach then. You kind of trial a, a crop that you're interested in and see how it does in, with small quantity. And then you, like the lisianthus you were mm-hmm. showing me, you probably only have a couple dozen yeah. plants. And then you'll see what what it's like to grow them and whether that's something you want to go big on next year or... It, it is. I want to see, first of all, how I can manage it, and then I want to see how the environment manages it, and then I make the decision whether it's something I want to go big or go home. Yeah. Or, you know. 
And whether the market's there. And, and whether the market yeah. is there, so. Yeah, and well, I thought about that too with the hydrangeas that you added. There's, there, I think there's a huge demand for local hydrangeas as cuts, and I don't think there's a lot of supply. I sure hope so. Yeah, so you added, uh, what, 10 rows of hydrangeas? Gosh, or? yeah, there's probably 10 rows out there right mm-hmm. now, and there's uh, 10 per row. And, okay. And we've got another couple hundred coming. <laughs> along with viburnums. And... Thank goodness Steve has those tractors. Oh my gosh, I know he has to get more fields ready. <laughs> oh, that's really great. Um, what what happened with the naming of Laughing Goat Farm? Did you name it or was it, because you married Steve and he owned this property when you guys got together, right? He did own the property. We did not have goats. Okay. So the goat thing is kind of a whole a side thing, but we... <laughs> farmer Amy and Farmer Steve. I know. We, we have, like, so many different little facets on this farm. It's just crazy. But it just provides the the right environment for you to have a few livestock and, you know, just yeah, and have a beehive and, you know, have all these things that you care about. And I like having a diverse property. You mm-hmm. know, I, I think I would be bored if I had too much of one thing. But mm-hmm. actually, Steve named the farm. We were, mm. we were just trying to, you know, I said, hey, we need to have a name for this place. And he says, well, how about laughing goats? And I think for him it was, you have to understand his sense of humor. He thought it was funny that we got goats because he thought I was goofy for wanting to have goats. Right. So he thinks the joke, like the joke was on him, like, oh, you got goats. Yeah, yeah. But so he says laughing goat, like, <laughs> like ha, ha, ha. Yeah, and, and, and yet it, the goats have a personality. And so what, what breed is it? They're Nigerian dwarf goats. They, have, they seem so friendly, and so maybe they do laugh. They are. They they're happy and they're they can be a little sassy, but they're fun. And you um and you're you're just treating them as pets. They're much. just pets. Yeah, they're happy and and they probably make you happy just being. I don't know. Just any living thing does that, right? Yeah, and I think they're a draw for the farm. I think it's fun mm-hmm. for people to come to a farm and see you know mm-hmm. see animals and see mm-hmm. things growing. There's. So talking about the farm being a draw, you have some plans for maybe future expansion for workshops and events, and is that right? Or? Yeah, I would love to have workshops out here for, you know, as a as a launch pad for florists that, you know, kind of want to teach to the layperson because mm-hmm. I, I think there's a real need for women to get together and connect. And that it the idea kind of sparked, and it's probably out there, but women love to go to those ceramics and, mm-hmm. and painting classes, mm-hmm. you know, and drink wine and just right. have kind of an evening out. And I thought, why not do that on a farm with flowers? Right. You know, every woman loves flowers, and, you know, why why not give them the chance to come out and play with beautiful product? Right, right. And that's a scale where you could um, you could run your own workshops or you could... Uh, custom tailor to a, like a private group probably and like create an event, you know, for a bunch of girlfriends or something like that. It wouldn't have to be signing up all these, you know, individuals who don't know each other. You could do both, I guess. Yeah, sure. I think, I think you're right. It would be great for like corporate events or for businesses mm-hmm. to bring together as, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a bonding thing. Or- yeah. I mean, you have the space and you also have floral design interest. I mean, I, we also were together at the Whidbey <laughs> flower workshop yes. last year and my girlfriend who's a florist in she's in Lakewood Maria she sort of introduced me to the to the cut flowers through florette actually uh-huh. I, like had no knowledge of this whole you know flower boom that was happening uh-huh. and so we attended a workshop and um I by no means am a florist yeah but it was fun for me to be somebody who's interested in growing things to kind of observe florists from that side mm. and and see you know, what they love to work with and, right. um, 
how would they use what you're growing? How do they use yeah. it? And it's just, it's really fun for me to see what comes out of that, that creative process. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's fun for me to kind of dabble in. But you don't want to be a farmer florist. You don't but want to I, be a floral designer. Nope. I'm not trying to take work away from any florists. I yeah. like appreciate and love the work that, that they do, but I have more than enough to keep my hands busy with a farm. I love that you have clarity about that too, because then you, you really are focused and yet you have the enough language to talk with a floral design customer to serve them well too. And yeah, that's really my intention is, yeah. and, and, and I'd love to bring florists out here that, you know, have, have that love to have a workshop and maybe don't have the space to do it, but I think this is a really beautiful well, venue for that. You've got this wonderful house, farmhouse that could you could have a workshop in, or you could be out in the fields too, or Absolutely. in the barn. But to have cutting privileges like right next to where a workshop's taking place, I think that's that's a fantasy for a lot of designers. And and I keep hearing from people who are trying to find unique kind of collaborations between a farm and a floral designer who wants to teach. So I feel like that's there's there's so much potential for you to, to add that. Yeah, and that's my dream. I, I have so much respect for a lot of the designers that I've seen lead workshops and just to watch their process, and I'd love to have them out here and host yeah. them and, you know. Yeah. Be careful fun. what you wish for. Oh, <laughs> I have to come out and see it first. You're already working seven days a week. That's true. That's true. That's cool. So um, with all these sort of – these – Pipe this parallel tracks of adding more dahlias, adding more peonies, adding more roses, adding more structures. You have so much potential. What do you envision, like in five years, that the farm will be like? Will you, will you, you have so much capacity, I guess, to expand. And at some point, you'll you'll just know what's right in terms of size and yeah, I envision. And variety. I mean, eventually, we'd like to have five acres in production. Okay, and what by, do you think you have now? Maybe. One. Okay. Oh, so you've I got mean, a lot of room to go. Oh, yeah. We've got okay. a ton of room to grow. I mean, that whole back field is probably a good two or three acres that's to yeah, be developed. Yeah, I, I saw how far that fence line was. There is twice as much there that you could... Yeah, and it kind of feels like when I look at it from afar, like, oh, that's... We don't really have that much. And then you sort of walk around it and you go, okay, this is actually a lot to... Yeah. this is agriculture. It's a lot to manage. It's not a cutting garden anymore. No. It's It's a real farm. I hope so. Yeah, so that's cool to think that you you can grow at your own pace, but there's you're not going to outgrow this space. Even though you said to me when we first pulled up, I used to think I wanted more than ten acres. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think this is this is a for two people, and you don't have a lot of crew. I think this is you have some seasonal help. I think this we is do. manageable. Yeah. That's cool. So if you're in the Seattle, if if people come to Seattle, they can find product from Laughing Goat Farm at the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, um, depending on what time of year it is. Sure. Because you're you're cutting new stuff every week and bringing it in, right? Yeah, and I've got some seasonal crops. I mean, like the chrysanthemums, obviously. You're not going to see those in the market until fall. Yeah. So they're taking up space in my field, but they're... Yeah, you've got a lot. I do have a lot. Oh, my gosh. Oh, they're so beautiful. My heart goes pitter-patter. You need to come out here when they're (sighs) doing that tunnel is just it's just breathtaking oh my goodness and it's so beautiful because it's kind of like this oasis in a barren land you know because they kind of come on at a time when everything else is finishing we're so so hungry yeah the dahlias are done we're so hungry for that I think that's great that you're picking on specialty crops that have a lot of value add they're not um you know annuals kind of have their need people need them but they're they're not super high markup and you know, I think you have so much input in just even acquiring the cuttings 
to start or producing the cuttings for the, the moms. But once they're in the ground, then they're, they produce every year, right? They do produce every year. We, we lost a couple varieties over the winter time because mm-hmm. I did leave them in the tunnel. It was mm. kind of an expensive trial. Oh, are you saying that you won't leave them in over the winter? No, I will leave them oh, in over okay. the winter, but I sometimes they need a little bit more protection. Oh, okay. so I, a it, 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 Yeah, it was just a little bit of trial to see if, if they, and they actually did really well, and you see how healthy they are. Yeah, so. yeah I see what you're saying. But every year you're going to just slightly, sort of fine-tune how you winter them over. Correct. Yeah, they're gorgeous. All right, well, I'm dying. To, I mean, the plants are gorgeous, and they don't even have blooms on them. So, <laughs> um, Well, I, I want to share photos of that I've taken today and then also links to all your social places so people can see what's happening on your Instagram feed and at, on your Facebook. But do you have a newsletter or a mailing list? Can people sign up to get on your mailing list or I, are you not quite there yet? I'm not quite there okay. yet. That's kind okay. of the intention. We're working on our website, so okay. that'll be a good... Well, if you if you do events or whatever, you'll probably post them on social media. Yes. Right. Amy, this has been so much fun. And I know Steve's outside. I can see him from here staking the tomatoes, but you promised that we could cut a few things before I leave, right? Absolutely. Oh, good. And good. I will post those photos. And I'm um, so glad that we could record this. And, and I think also your story is really encouraging to people who are new in their business that you've got to start and you will do have trial and error and you'll eventually learn what's your best crop or what's your best niche. I feel like you've really done that. You kind of have a good sense of, of what you want the farm to be and, and what market you want to be in. Yeah, I'm trying to. I, I think it's really easy to get caught up in a trap of trying to do what works for somebody else or what everyone else is doing mm-hmm. because when someone is successful at something, it's really appealing for obvious reasons. Right, right. But I do think but you it, have to find joy yeah. in what you're doing and what works for you. Right, and just because it's somebody else's success, it may not be, be the right thing for you and your farm. Right. Right. I think you've, you have indicated that about what you, what, what you want to grow and what you are kind of, you know, moving on and, you know, deciding isn't for you. So I think that it's hard to change. It's hard to give up your precious, you know, fantasies about being a flower farmer. But you are, you're making it beautiful and you're working incredibly hard. And you're, you're not kind of starry-eyed about that. I think you accept that that's the reality. Yeah, but, you know, when you love what you're doing and, and you're, I mean, who wouldn't enjoy having beautiful flowers yeah. to cut and kind of run around in. It's yeah. to me, it's fun. Yeah, I can. And tell. I'm just enjoying it. Do you ever dance out in the fields? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave that. At that. <laughs> I'm sure you get asked that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amy. This was a blast. Thank you so much, Deborah. I appreciate it. Oh, I loved it. much for joining me today. After I spent the day with Steve and Amy, including joining them for an incredibly delicious and satisfying lunch together at one of their veggie clients restaurants in Enumclaw, I came home with a bucket of red charm peonies, white orlea, and blue bachelor's buttons. What do you think I intended to do with those stems? Yes, I spent a pleasant afternoon creating red, white, and blue floral arrangements in anticipation of American Flowers Week. 
I'll post some of my celebratory designs in today's show notes, along with a link to the many ways you can participate in American Flowers Week, coming up June 28th through July 4th. You're invited to join in, and I can't wait to see what you plan and produce, and I'll be searching for your stories and posts with the hashtag American Flowers Week, so be sure to use that when you post your images. As you've heard me discuss, for months, the Slow Flowers Summit is our live celebration of American Flowers Week, scheduled for Friday, June 29th in Washington. D.C. Only a few seats are left, and I love your presence at the summit as we seek to bring together a diversity of voices, practices, and personal stories that together make the Slow Flowers community so vibrant. Take advantage of last-minute ticket promotions, including our plus-one discounted ticket option. Buy your ticket and bring a friend along at a special rate. Share the day with a colleague, and your ideas will multiply. I promise you an inspiring lineup of speakers, gorgeous flowers, fun and interactive design activities, and of course a chance to stretch your imagination in a thought-provoking and stimulating environment. Elevate your brand by joining us. I'm grateful to our entire community of farmers and florists who together define the Slow Flowers movement. As our cause gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and I invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button at deborahprinzing.com in the right column. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 328,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening, commenting, liking, and sharing. It means so much. And thank you to our sponsors who have supported Slow Flowers and all of our programs. They include Arctic Alaska Peonies, a cooperative of passionate family farms in the heart of Alaska, providing bigger, better peony flowers during the months of July and August. Visit them today at arcticalaskapeonies.com. The Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliages, and plants. The Growers Market's mission is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top quality products and services to the local floral industry. Find them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. Longfield Gardens provides home gardeners with high quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Visit them at longfield-gardens.com. Syndicate Sales, an American manufacturer of vases and accessories for the professional florist. Look for the American flag icon to find Syndicate's USA-made products and join the Syndicate Stars loyalty program at syndicatesales.com. Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds, supplied to farms large and small, and even backyard cutting gardens like mine. Check them out at johnny'sseeds.com. The Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, formed in 1988, ASCFG was created to educate, unite, and support commercial cut flower growers. Its mission is to help growers produce high-quality floral material and to foster and promote the local availability of that product. Learn more at ASCFG.org. Mayesh Wholesale Florist. 
Family-owned since 1978, Mayesh is the premier wedding and event supplier in the U.S., and we're thrilled to partner with Mayesh to promote local and domestic flowers, which they source from farms large and small around the U.S. Learn more at Mayesh.com. Certified American Grown Flowers. The Certified American Grown program and label provide a guarantee for designers and consumers on the source of their flowers. Take pride in your flowers and buy with confidence. Ask for Certified American Grown Flowers. To learn more, visit AmericanGrownFlowers.org. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com.